0: Good morning. It is good to be back with you and back in the book of Job. So, you've been in Job for the past month since I was here with you last. Uh, When I was here, we were back in chapter 1, and today we're going to be in chapters 6 and 7. And I, I feel like I have to do this because in the book of Job, you can't just jump in and take a chapter and read it and make sense of it. So here is our quick review. So if you've been following along for the past month, you know where we are. But Job, the greatest, most righteous man in the world, has undergone the most unimaginable suffering. Why? Well, in chapters 1 and 2, we know the answer to that. There has been a challenge made in heaven. And Job, has been singled out to be put to the test because he is the most righteous. And then we heard um, in chapter 3, Job lamenting the day of his birth um, in the depths of his despair. That is what he has to say. Last week from Pastor Scott, you heard chapters 4 and 5, the first speech from one of Job's three friends, the friend Eliphaz. And Eliphaz came to Job trying to be helpful, but in fact, not being so helpful. Um, Suggesting to Job that the real problem, Job, is, Job, well, you have sinned. Suggesting that God is punishing him for his sin. We'll talk more about that in Job's response today. But now in chapter, chapter six and seven that we're gonna work through here today, we hear now Job, he has experienced the suffering and we saw how he responded to that in chapters one through three. But now he has experienced the response from the society around him, and especially in the voice of one of these three friends who will be speaking to him throughout the section of the book. And what he has heard from his friend, or maybe so called friend, has been, um, well, I'll, I'll use the term, his friends are adding insult to injury here, all right? That's that's where he is. So now he's suffered the, the loss of his children, his servants, he, all his possessions. He has suffered the skin disease that still plagues him, but now to add insult to that injury, he has heard from his friends, and now he hears what the people around him are thinking of him, all right? With that... We are going to jump into our chapters today, and um, again, as I, you know, as I move us through these chapters, this is just one part of the much bigger conversation that we're going to be listening to during these months, and I'll be suggesting things that will be developed um, in further chapters, but this is, these are some of the things that um, we need to see as Job responds, or, or we hear from Job, responding to Eliphaz. So let me start reading in chapter six and uh, see what Job has to say. Chapter six, um, Job 6.1. Then Job answered and said, "'Oh, that my vexation were weighed "'and all my calamity laid in the balances. "'For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. "'Therefore my words have been rash. "'For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Friends, Job, I hear him saying, I hear Job Job saying, Friends, don't you understand how bad this is for me? If you took my vexation and my calamity in verse 2, and put that on one side of a scale, you know, a scale that would balance out on the trays, you'd put my vexation, my calamity on one side, and then you put all the sand of the sea on the other side. That's the weight of my calamity and vexation. You know, we know the, the, the biblical sand of the seashore is used uh, in promises to Abraham that his, his offspring will be this innumerable promise of, of so many descendants and offspring, like the sand of the sea, like the stars of the sky, like the dust of the earth. Here, Job is talking about his calamity and vexation. Don't you recognize, my friends, that this is what I am experiencing? It seems like the friends going forward, what Eliphaz has already said, don't realize that. Job assigns in verse um, 4, the arrows of the Almighty are in me. He assigns the, um, his suffering to God. Um, and as I stated back when we were in chapters 1 and 2, you know, that's how it is pictured. There's no one in, the, in this book that denies the sovereignty of God in Job's suffering. This is because of God. God is ultimately responsible for this. Why is the other question, and that's what they all have. In the next few verses, um, what, what Job do is, does is he points to the natural world and makes um, the point that the, the animals get their food and they don't complain. And yet the food that he has been fed, his suffering has actually sickened him. I'm going to pick up reading in verse 8. Oh, that I might have my request and that God will fulfill my hope that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exalt in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. So like he said back in chapter three, he's again saying it would be better at this point if I were just dead. Back in chapter three it was, I wish I had never been born. Here it's, if God, if you're going to take away everything from me, why don't you just finish me off and crush me? Um, now, these are harsh words, and, and I recognize that. Um, one of the things I want to point out, and I'll do this a couple of places, is that Job is not alone in the Bible, all right. Sometimes Job is singled out, and rightly so, for this extra special attention in this book of one who is suffering and then responding to God in this way of just being so in such depths of despair. One place that I will take us just briefly is Psalm 88. Psalm 88, I'm just going to read a few verses, is um, famous for being the uh, probably the most negative, or for being the most negative lament psalm in the book of Psalms. Psalm 88 uh, doesn't end with a note of praise, but Psalm 88 is in our Bible, and it stands as an inspired psalm in the message of that psalmist as he is going through extremely troubling difficulties. So let me just read a few verses again, just so uh, to do this and see Job, is unique, but he's not alone. We see this type of um, experience elsewhere. Psalm 88, uh, let me just read a few verses, beginning in verse 13. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. The psalmist crying out to God, praying to God still. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They, that is those assaults and wrath, surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. So the psalmist here, um, experiencing the calamity that comes from God, his wrath, he doesn't understand why. He's calling out to God, and he even points out that his friends, his companions, have turned against him, all right? We should hear echoes of Job and his experience here in the psalmist. Um, One of the reasons that I um, do this comparison at times between what Job is saying, for instance, and what we find in the Psalms, or or, or Jeremiah is another one. He, in his book and in the book of Lamentations, can be extremely negative, um, even towards God at times. But when we read a Psalm that is expressing these feelings, this, to my reading of the Bible, has to be a legitimate expression in an inspired psalm here. So one thing that is often asked of Job by readers of the Bible is, does he go too negative? Does he say things that are too bad? Or does he, you know, does he sin in the course of his speeches? And one way to approach that, I'm just suggesting, is to compare what is he saying? What, is, what are people saying elsewhere? Look at what Jeremiah says, chapter 20 of Jeremiah. We're not going to go there today, but you can read just how um, the depths of his despair, even um, suggesting that we'd be better off if he hadn't been born. Hear the psalmist saying, um, I am experience your wrath even though I pray to you and my friends have turned against me but that's where, that's where Job is here. Um, so I'm coming back into Job 6. Job is experiencing now, um, responding to what his friends have done to him, where he hoped, as we'll see in a moment, his friends would have said something helpful and good and comforting. I'll pick it up in verse um, 14. He who withholds, Job 6.14, he who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. And the implication is his friends are withholding that kindness, and so they are forsaking God. 15, my brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away, which are dark with ice and where the snow hides itself. When they melt, they disappear. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The caravans turn aside from their course. They go up into the waste and perish. The caravans of Tima look and the travelers of Sheba hope. They are ashamed because they were confident. They come there and are disappointed. The picture here um, that he's developing is one that would have been more familiar to the people in the, um, the Near East. He's talking about the torrent beds. Another word for that is the wadi. All right, and and picture a a scenario like this where it talks about the caravans. All right, so there's a caravan of traders with camels or whatever traveling through the dry places, the desert. So they run out of water. And one of them, one of the, the, the merchants says, oh, I remember last time we came through here, someone showed me, if you go up into these hills, there's a stream of fresh water. So the caravan turns aside off of its path and goes up to that very place but what they find is a dry stream bed, because it's not a stream that flows continually. That's not the torrent um, or the the wadi. The wadi is the temporary or occasional stream that is only there in the rainy season. So sometimes, you can find water there. Other times, it seems to point out here, in the, the winter, it would be frozen over and even dangerous that way. His friends are like this torrent bed or wadi. He expects to be able to go there and find fresh water to ease his thirst and comfort him, but the wadi is a disappointment because whenever you really need the water there in the dry season, it's not gonna have it. That's how he's talking about his friends. He wishes that they would have comforted him in some ways but he already sees where where they're going. He has heard the first speech of Eliphaz. They are no help to him. They are no comfort. Instead, they are the ones who withhold kindness. Verse 21. For you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. Let me just pause there and make a point. One potential implication of this is they see, the friends, the society around Job, they see unimaginable suffering on the part of Job. What do they need? They need a reason and an explanation. Because if this happened for no logical reason, well, then it could happen to them, right? Right? They're afraid. We need to explain this. We need to put this in some category that makes sense to us, and then we can we can let it go, right? So it doesn't bother us. But instead, they see him. They know how he has been in the past, but why has this happened to him? Job, um, in verse, let me just read a few more verses and then summarize um, what we're seeing in this chapter and be able to move on. So in verse 22, have I said, make me a gift or from your wealth offer a bribe for me? Okay, start naming my sin, my friends. Am I one who has offered bribes? And he even says this down in 24, teach me, verse 24, and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. Just tell me, if your theology tells you that I am suffering greatly, therefore I must have sinned in some huge way, go ahead, just tell me how I've sinned. But instead, Job says to his friend, friends, there is no big sin. I haven't done that. Verse 30, is there any injustice on my tongue? He denies that there is. When we turn to chapter 7 then, um, he begins by um, just lamenting his current circumstances. Life is hard, and Job's life has been more miserable than anyone else's. What happens in verse seven there then, and I'm gonna jump down to it, is um, Job, and we can tell by the context moving forward and even by the way he's expressing this, Job now turns from speaking to his friends and the, the commentators and those who are, are looking at this carefully can sort through some of this because when he speaks to his friends, he says, you, in the Hebrew, that's a plural. Here, beginning in verse 7, he begins speaking to you in the singular, and the context is obviously God, all right? So he's speaking now to God. Verse 7, remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. That is God. While your eyes, God, are on me, I shall be gone. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him anymore. He has no hope. He's going down to to death, and he has no hope of returning from there. God is going to see him go to death. Job expresses in verse 11 his bitterness and anguish. Therefore, verse 11, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Um, Very quickly, sometimes we we see the word bitter and we assume that must be sinful. I wouldn't jump to that conclusion with Job. Um, Often bitterness is a, a sign of sin. Again, can we give him occasionally, the benefit of the doubt, and say, imagine what he has gone through. Um, Someone else, another comparable person, maybe not quite as bad, but similar, is um, in the book of Ruth, do you remember her mother-in-law, Naomi, losing her husband and her two sons, coming back to Jerusalem and saying, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, call me Mara, which means bitter, because God has dealt bitterly with me. Um, She has lost all. Now she, Naomi, in the course of that story, overlooks that she hasn't lost quite all. She still has Ruth, her daughter-in-law, who brings great blessing into her life. But these are the people and these exceptional cases in the Bible who are just dealing with unimaginable um, suffering, that is where Job is, and I don't want us to forget that. He continues, verse 12, Am I the sea or the sea monster that you set a guard over me? Um, one of the things, even in this highly poetic language, he's saying, Why, God, do you Why do you feel like you have to constrain me? Like, am I the sea or the sea monster? Because the sea, the ocean in the Old Testament, even in, into the, the end of the Bible, is... Um, represents and, and is a force of chaos, right? God has to move the sea into one place and hold it back so the dry land can appear during creation. And at the flood, he allows the waters to again cover the earth. They need to be constrained, and they represent probably even more than the natural forces, but even spiritual forces of chaos that God constrains. Job says, God, God, I'm not the sea, I'm not the sea monster. I can't do any real damage. Why do you feel like you have to put me in this place and set this guard around me? He continues um, to ask the question, God, why have you singled me out? Um, often we would think, oh, someone is singled out by God. That's a good thing. Um, He says in verse 17, "Um, what is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? In the book of Job, why do you consider man? In Job's case is a negative because he set him up as his target. Um, There's a a similar verse over in Psalm 8 that says, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? That there is a very positive singling out. Here, it's the negative singling him out. Verse 19, I'm going to pick it up there to, to, to finish this chapter and then see the implications for us. Verse 19, how long will you not look away from me? You know, when are you just going to leave me alone, God? Now, and sometimes he says, leave me alone. Other times, God, come and visit me. I want an answer. I want to be able to tell you. I mean, Job can contradict himself. That's okay nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit. Verse 20, if I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark or your target? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be one of the things that Job is sometimes accused of is being overly righteous or self-righteous. I am skeptical of that accusation based on some of the things that he says for himself. And we'll have to deal with that going forward as the friend's trying to characterize what he's saying and how he responds. Sometimes he's, he's, he's pictured as saying, I am sinless and I am perfect and I am righteous. That's perfectly righteous. That's... That's why I don't deserve this, but if you look what he said, look at what he says here to God. When he turns to God, he says in verse twenty, "If I sin," and maybe I have, but the implication is, "If I sin, and I don't know what that sin is, but maybe I did a little sin. I'm reading into it, but that you know, in the context, that's context. That's what I'm understanding. If I sin, what do I do to you?" Verse twenty-one. Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquities? He is not here claiming sinless perfection. He's claiming, I don't know of any sins. If I've sinned, couldn't you just forgive me? So the way that I want to kind of frame this for us in order to understand what Job is doing in this speech and going forward then is Job is having two conversations. All right, and I think it's important for us to recognize that. He's having a conversation with his friends. His friends, with absolute certainty, are saying, Job, we know what's going on with you. See, we knew that you used to be a righteous guy, and you were blessed abundantly. We saw the many blessings, the ten children, everything you had. You were uh, you know, honored as a wise and righteous man. And that's how our theology works, right? You know, That fits he's righteous, he's upright, he's blessed by God. But now something has changed, Job. You now have turned, you are suffering to an extent that we have never seen before. And what our theology says is that means you have sinned, right? That's how God works. In their mind, they are making that, that concept. Um, that God blesses the righteous and brings suffering and calamity on the wicked, they are making that an absolute statement. They are claiming this happens in every single situation at every time in every person's life. Therefore, we know, Job, you have sinned in a really big way. And in his defense to the friends in that conversation, he says, no, I have not sinned in some big way and he will give lists later on of sins that he hasn't committed, even as his friends falsely accuse him of that. So he's in that conversation where he says, no big sin, no, I will not admit to that. In his conversation with God, however, and that's what I just introduced at the end, you know, the the second part of chapter seven, Job is confused. This makes no sense to him. Why is this happening? He actually shares the theology of the friends. God, if I'm suffering like this, that means you have found me guilty and are punishing me. But if you found me guilty, it must have been for some tiny little sin. Why can't you just forgive me? If you found me guilty of something bigger than that, God, maybe you have misjudged me. And he considers himself at this point, judged and convicted. And going forward, we will see him trying to make an appeal, reopen the case. God, take another look at me and see that I am innocent because he assumes that God has found him guilty. So let me just take one of those, and, and, and we'll have to apply these in, in different ways throughout the book. Let me just take one of those very quickly and think about it. Um, it's, we as Christians, you know, we have suffering. Why does suffering come in? I don't know that, um, just a disclaimer, I don't think that the book of Job is the answer to our questions about suffering, all right? In one sense, I don't think it is. In another sense, I think it is. Um, Let me illustrate. When we as Christians are suffering, right? we have to ask some questions, all right? If my suffering and the bad things have happened, are they simply the natural outworkings of sin or poor decisions in my life. If I'm driving down the street at some high rate of speed, breaking the speed limit, going through red lights, and I get in an accident and break my leg, that's the natural outworkings of my sinfulness, right? Let's go a step further. If I recognize my sinfulness there, and I confess it and repent, and we'll say a little more about that, and God forgives me for my my sin, you know, being reckless and putting other lives in danger and all do that, doing all that. If he forgives me that sin, I am cleansed. We'll read the verse in a moment. Does my broken leg automatically get healed? No. There's a and natural outworkings, natural effects of our sin that will, will happen. On the other hand, if I have sinned as a Christian and I confess that sin, we have the great teaching, 1 John 1, 9, we all know it. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our righteousness. The next verse, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. I don't think Job gets to that place where he claims absolute sinful perfection. And then we as Christians, when we think about our sin, our suffering, what are the various ways that they are related? Another teaching that we get is that if we are, as Christians are living in sin, God, as our faithful father, as our parent, corrects us as his children. Hebrews teaches, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He can discipline us. He can correct us. But when we confess and are forgiven, we shouldn't think that he is still punishing or disciplining us but we always want answers. So with that as a very quick setup, um, I recently heard the testimony of a Christian woman looking back over her life and expressing um, uh, at a a much earlier time in her life after she got married, she went through the tragic um, experience of having a series of miscarriages and asking the question, why? I'm a Christian. I'm being faithful to God. Why is that happening? She in her second-guessing, wondering, the nagging question is, is that because of sins that I did long ago? If we take seriously God's word, the answer to that is no. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We can't but what do we want to do? What are we even trained to do and they to do? We want to connect the dots. We want to see all the reasons. We want to get the answers. And she wasn't given an answer. No, she didn't all of a sudden have God appear and give her an explanation. This is why I did this. No, the Bible can tell us how he will use events like that in, in someone's life, absolutely, and what that would but that still doesn't get back to it. why me, why now, why this way? Why did you allow this? Why did you do this, God? The book of Job, if anything, addresses those concerns. It's in this, we want logical answers. It's because of sin and I'm being punished. It's because I'm suffering because, uh, you know, something I've done in the past. It's because of this. The book of Job addresses the inexplicable when we just don't know. And are we as Christians? See, Job never gets an explanation. We'll go to the end of the book and it's never told him why he suffered. He and his friends, Elihu later on, are all going to try to explain this, but none of them knows what happens in chapters one and two like we do. So we sit, and I think I mentioned this, this last time, we are in a place of much greater knowledge, almost omniscience of this situation. We know what's really happened. Job, his friends, none of the human characters in this book know what's going on. And so they're trying to make the best of it, but in fact, doing more damage. When we address one of our fellow Christians who is going through some type of hard times and we say, well, maybe you just need to have more faith. What are we assuming? That they're not currently having enough faith. Are we potentially adding insult to injury there, making those assumptions? Much more to be said about all these issues, and I'm sure it will be as we move through here, but those are some of the things that I want to lay out for us um, for us today to start thinking about, you know, how can I make these same mistakes that Job, that his friends are making? How can I learn from this? How can I come to a greater understanding of God? And even when I don't understand, can I be satisfied with that answer? I don't know, and yet I'm going to trust in God anyways. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for this very challenging book of Job, and I pray as we enter into it week after week, you would be teaching us that you would help us to see this man, Job, enduring just incredible suffering, um, crying out to you and not getting the answers that he wishes he would get, sometimes we find ourselves, um, not getting the explanations we want, not having all the answers, and yet I pray that you would help us trust in you even more, even through that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for sharing in this message. We pray it will make a difference in your life. Please consider joining us for our Sunday morning and evening worship services. For location and more information, visit our website, www.gracewaybc.org, and listen next time to learn more. May the God of peace richly bless you through His Son, Jesus Christ.